Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Will Summer, and welcome to the Daily Beast Fever Dreams. I'm a politics reporter at the Daily Beast. My book on QAnon, Trust the Plan, The Rise of QAnon, and the Conspiracy that Unhinged America, will be available in February and is available for pre-order now. And I'm Kelly Weil. I am also a reporter at The Daily Beast, and I'm the author of the book Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture, and Why People Will Believe Anything. On this podcast, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious, sometimes scary fanatics infecting the way that millions of Americans view the world and how they vote. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, grifters, and influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. Welcome back to Fever Dreams. I'm Will Summer, joined as always by Kelly Weil. Kelly, how's it going? I'm good, Will. How's it hanging? Good. You know, I have to say briefly, um, I was out in Tucson, Arizona this weekend for the Tucson Festival of, of Books, which turns out to be an enormous book festival. And I just wanted to give a shout out to all the Fever Dreams listeners I met in Tucson. You know, I think people, sometimes they stereotype Fever Dreams listeners. They say, the guy who doesn't own a headboard demo, right? But it's, <laughs> but it's not true. We have a very diverse group of listeners, including some older folks. And, you know, it was just, a, just great meeting people of all types who are into the podcast. They had a lot of very complimentary words about you, Kelly. Maybe me, a little less so. But, uh, but yeah, overall, it was a great experience. <laughs> Run the gamut from no headboard people to like people with five headboards. We welcome all. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Well, first up here is this really distressing story that came out uh, over the weekend about a college in North Idaho. And from what I can tell, it's like imagine the most annoying person in your, you know, freshman literature 101 class, but it's actually the dean and it's actually the whole board overseeing the college and it's the, uh, <laughs> it's the state government. What is up with this college? Yeah, so this is a story in the New York Times over the weekend. It's called The Magnification of North Idaho College. And it's by a guy named Charles Homans, if folks want to look it up. And I, I just wanted to flag this because I thought this was really a great example of this phenomenon I see as conservatives turn towards more like local action and this idea that you can sort of impose your talk radio at Fox News ideas on public institutions and, and sort of shred the last bit of, of social fabric we have left. Because in this story, this is about a community college in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, which Kelly, you may know also as a very popular hangout for white supremacists. Oh, boy, howdy. Yeah, it's the community hangout. It's where everybody from all over the U.S. is packing up, moving to Coeur d'Alene to the immense frustration of people who've lived there for ages and really don't want it to be a white supremacist hub. Yeah, it's a real issue they're battling. Yeah. So, so, but, you know, yeah, with, with that said, as you say, I mean, there do seem to be a lot of regular folks, nice folks there. And so this is a story about the community college there, North Idaho College, which got itself crosswise with the local Republicans um, and, and sort of a particularly MAGA strain of Republicans in 2020 after they put out a pretty anodyne statement expressing solidarity with Black Lives Matter after George Floyd's murder. And this 
seems to have set off this set off this whole thing that was like you know this sort of remote community college in idaho is in the the clutches of of marxism and so this previously a political institution is taken over by it has an elected board and so a bunch of real maga types run for the board and sort of decide that they're going to purge the leftists in this famous you know bastion of of, of socialist thought in the united states and kelly would it surprise you that it didn't go very well yeah, I mean, generally purges. I mean, it, listen, you're you're battling Marxists. I'm going to suggest like don't do the uh, Stalinist purge tactic. <laughs> this is an interesting story for me because for decades conservatives have complained about liberal control of academia, but really only just in the past few years have we seen these really sort of Victor Orban esque moves to we will seize control of the colleges. We're certainly seeing it in Florida, where someone like Chris Rufo, a Twitter personality, has been appointed to the board of, of one of the the public liberal arts schools in Florida by Ron DeSantis. And now we're seeing it here in, in Idaho. So after this, this MAGA board took over what was otherwise a totally fine community college, here's just a couple of things that have gone down. All right. It's had five presidents in one school year, two oh. of whom are suing the school now. <laughs> well, I just have to say, as I, I, I used to, as a college student, run a really bitchy uh, you know, college blog. This is terrible for the college, but so good for whatever entrepreneurial college blogger is running. This is, you know, it's gold. <laughs> it's probably no surprise that I too ran a bitchy college blog. <laughs> and <laughs> and I, I, I completely know what you're saying. I actually had to read that sentence several times. I'm like, I'm sorry, five presidents in one year? Okay, so Moody's downgraded their debt over, quote, management dysfunction. They are w weeks away from losing accreditation, which would essentially be a death sentence for the community college. College. And as part of one one feud, the board fired the respected existing uh, sort of pre takeover president and replaced him with the wrestling coach. <laughs> so, so I guess that's one of the two of the five presidents there. So basically, this is not just sort of, you know, oh, they're, they're cutting the, the CRT classes. I mean, this college is on the verge of no longer existing because of this MAGA takeover. Yeah, I mean, this is part of a just running bid by the right to completely cut out any kind of publicly funded education, right? I mean, about a year and a half ago, I was writing about the John Birch Society, and they're completely on record. They're like, oh, we don't want public schools at all. So you see it in, you know, these attacks on higher education. You see it in the Moms for Liberty attacks, uh, public schools, the harassment of teachers. And yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a pretty clear through line uh, among these people who don't really want this publicly funded center of community. Yeah. And, and, and so now you sort of have, I mean, look, this is Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, right? Like, I, I, I really think the vast majority of people in this community are Republicans. But you have the kind of the business Republicans start saying, like, wait a minute. I mean, I run a business. I need people who are, you know, certified in these various trades. And so now these kind of local rich guys are vowing to take back the board. But it really is such a, a bizarre scene. You know, the, the head of the this MAGA board group, a few months back, people were saying, you think we're going to lose accreditation? You know, uh, should we really have the wrestling coach running the college? I don't know. And he said, no, that's fake news. And well, it turned out to be real news because they are now, as I said, just weeks away. Also in this story, a guy named Vincent James, who I know you are familiar with, Kelly. Oh, very unfortunately. A white supremacist podcaster who goes by the, by the alias Red Elephants and has sort of been one of these people who flocked 
to this community. Well, you know, the good news for the MAGA Board of Trustees is that Vincent James says he supports them completely. Well, that's awesome. You know, I, I think he might find some solidarity with that wrestling coach because Vincent James was the unofficial videographer of the white supremacist brawling group, uh, Rise Above Movement. He would go out and he would film them, you know, punching people in the face. So I think there's really, you know, maybe some, some shared uh, interests there that maybe they can bond over. The reason I wanted to bring this up, among many things, but there's this aspect to it that, as I mentioned, is is sort of this downer aspect of like, well, you know, this is seen as a liberal thing, so we're going to destroy this. You know, the Times, I think about a year ago, ran this thing where another rural community tried to hire a librarian for, I think, like $80,000. And this was publicly posted in the, in the city council and this job. And then everyone just flipped out because they said, you know, well, why do we even need a library and stuff like this? And it's just such a bummer. Yeah, it really is. I mean, all these people will, you know, hype up homeschooling or whatever. But if some of that loses, uh, I think it's viability when you're talking about a college homeschool degree. And- yeah, I'm going to homeschool my 18 year old son in electrical <laughs> engineering. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's just sort of a governance by fuck you. It, we don't like the idea of liberal colleges, all colleges. So just take them apart. Well, at least if they destroy this college, it will no longer be issuing sort of milk toast statements in support of Black Lives Matter. Got them. All right. The big celebration over the weekend. It's the Conservative Political Action Conference, CPAC, the big party. Kelly, how did it go? CPAC, normally the hallmark event of the year in conservative circles, but this year, gotta say, kind of low energy. Empty seats, quiet crowds. Let's just look at how CPAC's organizer, Matt Schlapp, kicked things off in his opening speech. He goes, there's a lot of chatter in the media over who's here and who's not here. This is something he said in like the first 15 seconds of the speech. So, I mean, elephant in the room. Nobody went. This was a really, really quiet CPAC. And there's all kinds of pictures of, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene speaking to a fairly empty audience. But it's not just that the crowds were kind of lackluster. There were some really glaring factional absences. There's no Ron DeSantis, which unspoken opponent of Trump in 2024. And a lot of his faction, his potential support was also missing. There was notably no turning point USA, and there wasn't even uh, very much Fox News. Even a couple years ago, Fox Nation was sponsoring CPAC. They had their branding all over. It. And as the New Republic noted, they went there and they said, you really cannot catch sight of Fox here. Instead, it's the B team that's filming this stuff. It's the Real America's Voice and the Newsmax and some of the even fringier media outlets. We've got something called Proverbs Media Group, which I have not even heard of. I've never heard of that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that's something that we're going to be intimately aware of by the end of the year. We've got Lindell TV, uh, a telegram channel called Frontline Flash. Now, listen. If you have a Telegram channel, the messaging app with a booth or, you know, maybe credentials covering an event, that kind of suggests to me that you don't really have the big name draw. You're really reaching into the weeds for anybody to pay attention. I think that's right. I mean, CPAC this year w- was really down on its heels. I mean, let's just talk about, you know, the obvious thing here. And we're, we're going to be careful here, given that that uh, this is a story produced by our own outlet. Matt Schlapp himself is, is embroiled in a sexual harassment scandal. Uh, the Daily Beast, our colleague Roger Sullenberger, I believe a month or two ago, reported a story about a Herschel Walker staffer who said that Schlapp had groped him and I guess pummeled was the word, his groin. Matt Schlapp and this 
staffer are now embroiled in a lawsuit. MatchLab denies it. I would say that's certainly probably maybe the most prominent cloud hanging over CPAC right now. Totally. And, you know, that's not even the only allegation facing CPAC. It's former, like, a comms director has announced that she wants to sue them. She says that she was unjustly fired for complaining about racist and sexist remarks. So some of the gold is starting to fade out CPAC. And I think that might be part of why Fox has taken a little bit of a step away from them. These allegations, they're not good. They're still being litigated, but it could very well blow up a match lap's face. So do you want the Fox News CPAC branding? I'm not sure Fox does in this specific moment, especially when they're under quite a lot of fire themselves. I mean, think about this. A few years ago, there were major tech companies that were sponsoring CPAC. You know, it was like like Facebook or Google, something like that. I mean, there was there was a major sponsorship here. Meanwhile, you know, now you look at this year and you have Michael Knowles from The Daily Wire saying that transgenderism has to be eradicated, right? I mean, this was sort of the big breakout moment of this CPAC. You know, n- no wonder anyone who at all has any sort of reputation to uphold is is shying away from that. Yeah, I mean, so much of this CPAC was hate-driven, right? It was the main talking points from a lot of the speakers, this anti-LGBT, specifically anti-trans hate. I think it's striking because the GOP really ran on that platform for a lot of the midterms. They ran on so much fear-mongering about trans children, about uh, gay rights, and it really blew up in their faces. They had a way lackluster midterm turnout. And yet they're still clinging to this. I think maybe it speaks to just sort of the dearth of messaging. I don't know how much else they have right now besides scaremongering about LGBT children. And so, you know, when someone like a, a Michael Knowles gets up there and talks about, you know, eradicating transgenderism, which I mean, let's be honest, when he says ism, I mean, that's just turning actual living people into an ideology and saying, oh, I'm not calling for eradicating them. I'm talking about eradicating the ideology. Well, yeah, I'm not talking about the Jews. I'm talking about Judaism. Right. <laughs> now, he's trying to walk this semantic line. You know, the Daily Wire was threatening to you know, sue uh, plenty of outlets, including our own. And so we kind of have to tread lightly here. But the issue is that, you know, they're trying to say, oh, transgender, you, like they're making this thing up out of whole cloth to say that he's not referring to to transgender people. Yeah, and absolutely. And listen, if we want to just stop trying to parse this, we can move on to other speakers who, I mean, forget just, you know, talking about the semantics of it. We're suggesting actual legislative action against trans children. Marjorie Taylor Greene gets up there. She has this, uh, it's called like the Protecting Child Innocence Act, which is like, She says she wants to make it a felony to provide anything related to gender affirming care for minors. Trump got up there and he said he would endorse a similar ban on gender affirming health care for minors. And like I said, these are, you know, you can look at the polling. These are wildly unpopular stances that very arguably contributed to the Republican Party's midterms flop. I mean, people believe in LGBT rights. It's just statistical reality. And more importantly, these programs will have a, you know, a demonstrable negative effect on children. So they're digging down, not up. They had a Shia Reishik. She's the libs of TikTok founder up there. I mean, it's hard to look at this whole display and feel like they've got much going on besides this very narrow targeting of, you know, sexual minorities. I got to say, I got to speak up for someone who's been who was snubbed here on this this week's CPAC. <laughs> you know, you look at this schedule. They're going to have Jaya Rychik, libs of TikTok. You're going to have these people. Where's Cat Turd? 
Why is Cat Turd being left out in the dark? You know, come on. He's too busy running Twitter. You know, Twitter had a big <laughs> outage this weekend. I'm sure the helicopter turned him in to fix, you know, plug plug the bugs or whatever. It's a uh, no. I mean, he he is at this point like an ascendant GOP star. And you're right. That's a that's a glaring omission. But before we move on, there's just one one thing I, I want to point out about CPAC's kind of space within the larger conservative movement. You know, you mentioned Turning Point USA was wasn't there, and I think it's notable that Turning Point runs a lot of its own kind of not officially rival, but but effectively rival CPACs throughout the year. They have the Student Action Summit. They have all these things that attract a lot of speakers that CPAC would. And although they are officially for students, sort of end up attracting a lot of adults, too. <laughs> they kind of function as as CPACs. And, you know, you also have on the fringier side, you have the Reawaken America thing, which we've talked about with Michael Flynn and Clay Clark, and they're doing their thing. And then you have these Trump rallies and you have, I'm missing one or two, but oh, yeah, well, you, you also have the fact that CPAC, the CPAC branding i think has been really diluted because matt schlapp has like three or four cpacs a year not even counting the international cpacs i mean there's like cpac west there was cpac hungry i think it's so surprised that even if you just look at it from a, a branding and sort of a dilution point of view that cpac is kind of starting to lose its steam it's a sad day when cpac is the moderate stance but i think it sort of is at this point right tp usa is going to have the america fest with the fireworks and the they got cool. benny coming out with the benny johnson with the <laughs> memes <laughs> firing memes into the crowd with a t-shirt cannon and no you've got you know like the left doesn't have these pepes folks <laughs> They're rare. No, you've got, I mean, even during CPAC, you have Nick Fuentes holding his rival white supremacist conference literally across the street. So, I mean, this is not a party that's really going in for moderation right now. And if you are going to, you know, go balls out, you may as well pick one streaming. You've got the QAnons, you've got the TPUSAs, you've got the neo-Nazis. And what's CPAC got to offer? <laughs> Some just running the mill anti-trans hate. I think that's exactly right. Okay, Kelly Tucker Carlson, brave investigative reporter, has gotten received exclusive access to the January 6th security footage from Kevin McCarthy. Now, this has been a, a wish from the right for about two years now. This is sort of the holy grail. This is sort of the, the modern-day Barack Obama long-form birth certificate. Ooh, if only it was released, all would, uh, you know, everything would go our way. Uh, now, so he launched this stuff on Monday night. Kelly, how did it go? Yeah, so, I mean, Burr has been part of this long-running attempt to whitewash the January 6th attack, right? You know, first they were saying it's Antifa, then they're saying, oh, it's not that bad. Then they're saying it's actually, everyone was peaceful there, they were let in by police officers, and this is all part of a setup. So Tucker releases his first trove of videos on Monday night, and he's making that argument exactly. I think via a very interesting character in the January 6th riot. He made the case for the QAnon shaman, Jacob Chansley, basically implying that Chansley was not really a rioter, that he was set up, that police allowed him into the building where he was unfairly framed. And this is a tremendous distortion of previously available facts, right? We have seen hours and hours of video of Jacob outside the Capitol, inside the Capitol, and this recutting, this sort of a director's remix of the footage does not paint an accurate description of the day. Tucker says, quote, to this day, there is dispute over how Chansley got into the Capitol building. I mean, Will, 
no, there isn't. There's no dispute. There's extensive footage of him in the crowd that's rushing the building. You can see his QAnon shaman horns sticking up over a crowd of Oath Keepers. You have him entering the building like the first 30 seconds after a, you know anti-abortion activist who's wearing a battle helmet kicks in the door. There's no dispute. He broke and entered. But Tucker is using this new footage to suggest that, you know, there are moments when he's walking through kind of calmly and maybe that suggests he's innocent. The implication Tucker is making here is that the deep state said, all right, who's the weirdest looking dude here? (laughs) And then said, all right, make sure he's in front of all the cameras. Let's make him the face of of this riot uh, or this, you know, as Tucker would put it, a perhaps a peaceful protest or something. And so, yes, you see this footage of Jacob Chance like like he's not spearing Capitol Police officers every step of the way. I mean, he's not... They they are not in, engaged in hand-to-hand combat with him, but anyone who was following the news coverage that day knows that the Capitol Police essentially decided to stop resisting the rioters and to sort of let them come in and do their thing, hoping that it would not end violently, and then saw them out. And so Tucker zooms in on these pictures of cops, like, not fist fighting with the QAnon shaman and says, you know, okay, this was this was all a setup to make us look ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, these cops were kind of damned if they did, damned if they didn't, right? Because, first of all, they were way outnumbered. And, you know, in the instances where they did fight back, they were accused of brutality. In the instances where they stood back, they were accused of aiding and abetting the riot. So there's really, there's not too much they could have done that wouldn't be wrapped into this uh, right-wing victimhood narrative. And I think what really, what really caps that for me is Officer Brian and Sicknick, he died the day after the attack. He was pepper sprayed by multiple people. He died of multiple strokes that a medical examiner said were kind of contingent on the attack. There were results of that. And Tucker last night is suggesting that Sicknick didn't die in that attack, that there's footage of him looking healthy and vigorous. Now, so what, he, he can't be involved in the defense there because then he died of other causes. It's an incredibly cyclical argument. And it's it's taking this footage of people, I think, behaving very rationally in that moment of trying to de-escalate or even act in their own self-defense and turning that into an argument that says that the right was set up, that these officers were totally cool with what was happening. I really can't stress enough what a big deal this footage was supposed to be on the right. This was supposed to prove that either there were agent provocateurs in the mix or that Antifa had been hidden somewhere. And this was such a big deal that, you know, according to some hardline GOP members, this is how Kevin McCarthy became speaker was he he cut a deal promising to release this footage and the fact that he's given it just to tucker has irritated to no end people like laura loomer who said hey i want to do my remix and i have to say i get kind of caught up in these things myself whenever there's one of these like they're gonna release it i get so excited like devin nunez released the memo oh i can't wait to see what's in the memo and then when it comes out and it's a bummer and it's like oh nothing happened and so i was did feel a little let down here given that really like nothing has come out as you said i mean a lot of this footage was available already Ready. This is a very low effort technique, which is when you show video of January 6th people not rioting and you say, see, you know, I mean, Tucker has this thing in the in his video where he says, you know, here's a part where they weren't trashing the Capitol. It was sacred to them. You know, they were such <laughs> great patriots. Yeah, well, this really grinds my gears because, you know, as you mentioned, a lot of people did want this footage and not just like Laura Loomers, but, you know, every major broadcast channel, CNN wants it. And somehow every time they ask uh, Kevin McCarthy pulls an Elon Musk and goes, oh, I'm working on it. I could only release it to Tucker, but uh, <laughs> I'm working this. on it, CNN. Um, and, you know, it's 
all this stuff is it's boring because it's already out like we've seen so much footage in trials and um the january 6th select committee that i didn't see anything unusual in this you know most of this is extensively relitigated one frustrating thing for me is that tucker carlson in his bids you know portray the QAnon shaman as being unfairly set up says well why didn't this come out at trial okay well tucker two reasons one is that uh chancely pleaded guilty he you know took an easy uh, plea says yep i did it i was in there whatever and the other is that a lot of this stuff was available to him in discovery if he'd wanted to you know go to trial and pursue it i don't think it would have exonerated him in any way because he was very demonstrably breaking and entering but it was available and not only that but it has come out in other people's trials it's come out in other trials of people who've been convicted of breaking into the capitol so not new really just kind of a boring like i hate to say it, it's bizarre to call riot footage boring but we've seen it so much and i think my only other flag is that you know we talk about the QAnon shaman took a plea deal got a pretty light sentence just to tell you how light that sentence is he's out in four months and i am willing to bet you like fifty dollars he's gonna appear on fox I think that's right. I mean, you know, we've seen a lot of these sort of chastened rioters who who then, you know, you take the guilty plea and then you get out and you're like, they tricked me. Never mind. You know, it was very unfair. <laughs> and, and, you know, he's kind of the crown jewel of that. And, you know, he obviously does have these these mental health issues. And so I'm sure it's going to be, you know, oh, they're so mean to poor Jacob Chansley, a, a Navy veteran who, who was drummed out or what have you. I think the big picture here is I suspect we're going to get a little more footage dribbled out here over the coming days from Tucker. But, you know, if there's one thing I've learned from Jacob Wool. I always look back on this is when when someone says, okay, we have the big bombshell, the first thing they announce, that's the best they have, right? Because it never gets better than that. Because, I mean, it makes sense. Why would you put the most interesting thing as your third or fourth story? And so, basically, the utter failure of this Tucker package, you might think that this would make Republicans who have just been, oh, crying out for this footage to say, oh, man, maybe it wasn't Antifa. Maybe it wasn't the agent's provocateur. But that's not going to happen. And uh, and I'm sure they're going to obsess over a new, well, you know, they didn't release the footage of Mike Pence. Um, you know, cowering in the uh, in the the loading depot or whatever. Maybe that's the the hidden stuff. Yeah, I'm fully anticipating the full exoneration of the QAnon shaman. Uh, give him like I don't know a year and a half to a congressional run, and then we can have you know uh, the horns in the in the Capitol, but legitimately. Honestly, it will be interesting when he... <laughs> I do like your idea that he's like, yes, I'm, I'm backgrounding the Senate, but it's cool this time. It will be interesting having him back out. I mean, I I think you know, obviously Kyle Rittenhouse had kind of a career as a right-wing celeb. I mean, you know, maybe maybe the QAnon shaman uh, could be another one. All right, Will, who is our guest this week? Okay, this week we've got Isaac Arnsdorf. He's a national political reporter for the Washington Post. And his beat... There's a lot of things we talk about here on Fever Dreams. He covers Donald Trump's new campaign. He covers the MAGA movement. He covers amateur election fraud sleuth. He runs the gamut. And so he's got CPAC to talk about and a whole lot of other things. So I'm looking forward to it. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 
Fever Dreams, like all Daily Beast journalism, exists because of the generous support of our subscribers, the people who pay for access to Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, exclusive ad-free newsletters, and our undying appreciation. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com to sign up. Okay, this week on Fever Dreams, we're joined by Isaac Arnsdorf. He's a national political reporter for The Washington Post. He spends his days covering all things Trump and MAGA. Isaac, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Will. Thanks for having me. All right, first of all, The Post just did a massive story interviewing, I think, what, 150 Republicans across the country for their thoughts on Donald Trump. What did you find? You know, we launched this project at the beginning of the year where Trump had had a rough couple of months. He launched his campaign and then he had dinner with Kanye West. He called for terminating the Constitution and it was a rough patch. And this was all after the midterms when a lot of Republicans blamed him for the lack of the red wave. And there was that real moment there where for the first time in a long time, it wasn't really clear whether his primacy in the party was going to continue. So, well, we wanted to figure that out. You know, is that just some, you know, would-be 2024 rivals who are saying that? Is it just Republican consultants who are saying that? Or is this a real thing that Republican voters are thinking? So we wanted to go back to the base, you know, back to the Trump voters who made the Trump phenomenon happen in the first place and get a sense of whether they were cooling on him. Was this time different. So we focused on the states that are the key states in the electoral college, the states that decided the 2016 election, decided the 2020 election, and are probably going to decide the 2024 election. Within those states, especially, we focused, we zeroed in on counties that flipped from Obama to Trump to Biden, or that stayed Obama to Trump to Trump. And what we found, kind of the big finding, is that this dichotomy between MAGA and Rhino that has dominated the intra-party dynamics in the Republican Party since Trump came on the scene, that's just not relevant anymore. That's not what's going on. You still have your always forever Trumpers would even vote for him third party or independent and would stay home rather than vote for someone else. That group exists, but they're kind of hard to find. And the polls reflect this also. It's a smaller group than it has been in the past. And then, you know, your never Trumpers have basically all been run out of the party at this point. There is a group of people who voted for Trump and say they won't vote for Trump again. We did find people like that. But again, they were a little bit few and far between. And so what's opened up since the midterms, this is the new thing. There didn't used to be a middle ground, right? There didn't used to be any other option besides with Trump or against Trump. But what happened since the midterms was this this other path opened up where you could be for Trump. You could say that, and a lot of people did say this to us, that he was a great president, the greatest president. They had nothing bad to say about him. But At the same time, they weren't sure that they wanted him to be the nominee again in 2024. And the big reason there was concerns about electability, concerns about whether he could win after what happened in 2020 and 2022. Were there any particular interviews you had that that stuck out at you as particularly interesting? 
Well, yeah, this was a big team uh, where we kind of divvied up the states and went to different places. So I personally went to Arizona and Michigan. And in both of those places, I was covering state party conventions. So there were Republicans from all over the state, but these weren't just people on the street. They were highly involved, elected Republican Party local officials. And both of those states went in different directions on those days, which was really interesting. Arizona ended up going, picking a, a new state party chair who could speak MAGA, but was kind of an establishment guy and was able to position himself as like the unifier. And the state party ended up deciding that that was really how they wanted to go. They wanted to have like a, a unity coalition rather than like a far right insurgent. And then Michigan went in the other direction. So actually the candidate who Trump endorsed in Michigan lost to someone who was even Trumpier, which became kind of a powerful illustration of how you could be like pro-Trump and not directly supporting Trump at the same time. You talk about these people who are concerned about Trump's electability. It does seem as though, I don't know, the spell has been broken, perhaps. You know, there, there seems to be a little less, you know, I thought maybe Trump might come back with this kind of punished Trump persona, like a new character. But instead, it sort of seems to be the same old thing. And I feel like even when you watch speeches and see the crowds, it's, it's a little thinner. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, what was interesting to me in these conversations about the electability question is that concern about whether he could win could coexist with the belief that the election was stolen. That was not admitting that they thought that Joe Biden really legitimately won the 2020 election. It was just that, like, and they could square the circle by saying that either you have to win by so much more so that it would overcome the cheating or that, like, in some versions, like the Democrats were extra motivated to cheat to stop Trump. And that was also the case with the way that a lot of these Trump supporters talked about how a lot of the criticism of Trump they viewed as unfair or undeserved, but they still got to a place where they acknowledged the word that they often used for this was how divisive he was and that someone else wouldn't bring all that baggage and might have a better shot. So that, that was sort of the move to how they could acknowledge this weakness of Trump without faulting Trump for it. So, Isaac, you were at CPAC over the weekend. How was your CPAC? CPAC is an experience. Every year has <laughs> got a different flavor. You know, this year was especially Trumpy. And this has been the case at CPAC for a long time. It's an organization that kind of started by imagining itself as a big tent for the conservative movement in recent years became very closely aligned with Trump. But what was interesting this year is you really felt that, you know, like I was saying, this this moment of uncertainty for Trump's future in the party, you felt that at CPAC this year. It felt more marginal again. It was literally smaller. I mean, they couldn't fill the room. There were even some empty seats when Trump was speaking. The other 2024 contenders, especially Trump's biggest competition, if he gets in, as we think he will, Ron DeSantis, skipped it rather than engage on Trump's territory. And to underscore the risks of showing up on Trump's turf, Nikki Haley did come and she basically got run out of there by Trump supporters who were chanting at her and heckling her. It is fascinating. I mean, you know, you almost want to say to those folks, like, don't worry, 
She's running to be vice president. She's running to, you know, get a cabinet post, something like that. I believe you or someone else posted a video of these hecklers. I mean, it seemed very intense. It was very intense. You know, it also was just a handful of people, really. And so there's a way in which I don't want to lose the perspective on how many people were were behind that. It was very disruptive. And, you know, she also got booed when her name was announced as part of the straw poll results. And her reception when she was speaking was polite, but clearly not enthusiastic. So politics is like that sometimes, you know, the vibes matter a lot. And, and it was a moment. It was definitely a moment where Nikki Haley got run out of CPAC because it's Trump's turf and he was dominant there. You know, I mean, this is something I've been thinking about as the primary shapes up is is Trump's advantage. And you know, it's not a huge deal, but I mean, Trump clearly has the advantage in, I would say, diehard fans, both at the grassroots level and in the sort of conservative media fame ball universe. Also at CPAC, there was some video of Mike Lindell just like going crazy about how he's going to destroy Ron DeSantis. And of course, then, you know, Laura Loomer last week was kicked off of property where she was trying to, to uh, shout at a Ron DeSantis book event. And DeSantis doesn't really have these kind of kamikaze pilots willing to uh, destroy their own reputations in a, in a bit in devotion to him. What do you think of the the emerging Ron DeSantis media universe down in Florida? You've got John Cardillo, a uh, you know controversial uh, would-be arms dealer who's facing a lawsuit down there. He's got all these characters. I mean, do you think DeSantis can stand up his own media operation? That's an important point that also came through in the interviews that we did. DeSantis was basically exclusively the only other name who people mentioned, people who were interested in someone besides Trump. And sometimes it was like not even literally not even his name. It was just like the Florida guy. So the interest was high, but the relationship was pretty shallow. You know, they didn't know him that well. We, we did not find a lot of devoted DeSantis supporters like there were those really passionate Trump supporters. And, you know, that could matter, particularly in a crowded field where you've got Trump and a lot of alternatives, then this is basically what happened in 2016. Trump had enough of a constituency that it carried through against kind of everyone else fighting to be the the last man standing against him. So, you know, part of the fun of CPAC is going going to the booths and seeing what sort of emerging movements have gotten booths at CPAC. What kind of merch did you see? What sort of new trends did you pick up on uh, at, as potential new issues on the right? <laughs> well, the best piece of merch that I saw was a shirt that said it had a picture of Carrie Lake's face. And it said, keep calm and carry on, like the British poster from World War II. But Carrie spelled K-A-R-I. And she was a featured speaker for the Reagan dinner. So that, I thought, was a, uh, was a good manifestation of how she has become a star in the MAGAverse. What was the reaction to Carrie Lake? She's a celebrity. I mean, she, I saw there was one guy who had a button that said Trump Lake, as if that should be the ticket for 20... I might, I might have even said Trump Lake 2024. Now, you know... Carrie Lake's probably not what Trump is looking for in terms of a VP, given how he doesn't really like to be overshadowed ever. But she has really made herself a superstar in the movement. And in the contrast to like all the other election deniers who lost in 2022 and have kind of faded away, she has harnessed that into to ongoing fame. Uh, within the movement and possibly a, uh, a continuing political career if she runs for Senate. What other potential issues did you see emerging at CPAC? You know, I know there were a couple of booths for abolishing ranked choice voting. 
Well, Sarah Palin was there to campaign for that. That is against ranked choice voting. There were two booths that were for groups that were advocating for defendants in the January 6th Capitol riot, which last year in Texas, one of those groups had like a like a jail cell set up where actually one of the defendants like posed in a jumpsuit. They didn't have that this year, but the, I thought it was interesting that there were not one, but but two of those booths. And then the pro-Trump super PAC had a like set of the Oval Office set up where you could go and take a picture of yourself sitting behind the Resolute desk. But I mean, the, there wasn't a ton going on at the exhibition floor, to be honest. It was not super busy. It was not full. Um, that was another one of those places where you could kind of see the diminishment of CPAC this year. Well, and speaking of that d- diminishment, you and uh, your colleagues at The Post had a big story last week about Matt Schlapp, Mr. CPAC himself, the head of the American Conservative Union. Um, we talked earlier on the episode about the sexual assault allegations about Matt Schlapp. But in your story, you also uncover a couple other, at least maybe eyebrow raising things about him. What did you uncover in this article? So in addition to the allegation that you mentioned, which we should say, you know, took its toll on CPAC in the form of lagging ticket sales and Fox Nation did not return as a sponsor. There were allusions to it from the stage, people saying, oh, we really have to stand with Matt. So it was very much in the air there. But some of the other issues that that we discovered, first of all, allegations against Matt relating to how he treated employees and subordinates throughout his career. This is a guy who has risen in Republican politics, has had top positions on the Hill, on K Street, and in the White House. But across that all, there have been these allegations against him, specifically when he was a chief of staff in Congress, allegations that he treated female employees unfairly. When he was the top lobbyist at Koch Industries, he was actually pushed out of that job after employees reported that there was an internal investigation that he made an anti-gay remark and retaliated against employees who he blamed for reporting that. And then there's also now an Equal Employment Opportunity Commission complaint by a former CPAC employee who says that she reported sexist and racist comments to Matt and his wife, Mercy Schlapp, and they didn't do anything about it and fired her in retaliation. And amid all this, this guy's making a ton of money. Is that right? Well, the Trump years were very good to Schlapp in terms of his lobbying business, probably peaking with when he was paid $750,000 to lobby for a 11th hour pardon, which was unsuccessful, but he got to keep the money. You know, since Trump left office and Schlapp made some controversial comments about George Floyd, his lobbying practice has really dwindled. And to make up for that, he started getting paid as the head of CPAC, which has historically been an unpaid volunteer position. And first it was $150,000. And then that rose to an annual rate of $600,000. That's crazy. Now, the phrasing of this article is just so in- so interesting here. I'll read from it here. One frequent point of contention was Schlapp's growing reliance on an intern's boyfriend who had little work experience to work on social media and communications. Now, skipping down a little, the 25-year-old contractor misrepresented himself as a wealthy heir. Now, a sort of <laughs> fraudulent heir is a classic character in literature, maybe a Wes Anderson movie, but not typically around CPAC. What is the deal here? 
<laughs> right. And, and one of our findings was that more than half the staff has turned over in the past couple of years, which is a sign of the turmoil in the organization and the concerns about SLAP's management and leadership. And a lot of that had to do with this intern's boyfriend, this, this contractor, who, like the story says, was someone who, who represented himself to colleagues as a billionaire scion and turned out not to be. And when Matt Schlapp was confronted with those facts repeatedly, he did not respond by addressing it uh, in terms of wishing the the 25-year-old on his way. He continued to take the 25-year-old's side. Wow. Mr. <laughs> Jim McDonald's of the McDonald's fortune. They're not, they're not, not, not telling the truth. Well, fascinating. Isaac, you've also done reporting on the House Republicans and the divisions therein. One thing that's been interesting to me is all of these investigations they are gearing up to do. What investigations should we be watching for as ones to, to follow? And which ones do you think will resonate most with the, uh, the MAGA base? There's some tension right now about surrounding oversight and specifically the the weaponization committee that Jim Jordan is, is standing up under the auspices of judiciary. This was one of the concessions that the McCarthy holdouts won back in January. They were calling it like a like a new church committee, meaning the committee in the 70s that investigated the growth of the intelligence community having to do with surveillance of civil rights leaders and all that stuff. So I'm not sure that all the members are on the same page about what that committee is supposed to do, what its main targets are. Their first hearing was, I think a lot of Republicans would agree, kind of embarrassing. And the Democrats put out a report basically disparaging the uh, credibility of those witnesses. And a lot of Republicans are frustrated that that committee has gotten off to a slow start. They feel like there's a lot of there there and they're not seeing a lot of seriousness in going after it. Yeah, I mean, this has been a real debacle thus far. You know, I've been saying for a while here that the FBI whistleblower thing that Jim Jordan is looking into wasn't really resonating in a way I would anticipate something like that would on the right. And I, and I think once the Democrats last week came out with this counter report, it poked a lot of holes in it, you know, sort of impugning the witnesses, I, I, I thought was some, some pretty good uh, debunks. So there we go. So that's one to watch for. Of course, we, we'll have the, the Hunter Biden laptop stuff cooking along. Do you think the base is still really uh, invested in the in the Hunter Biden saga? Oh, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> I noticed this at CPAC also, this space with the weaponization, you know, Trump's move has been like, they're coming after me because I'm fighting for you, right? That's like what he always says. And I, I noticed it was really interesting. It was J.D. Vance was talking about this weaponization theme at CPAC, and he was listing all the ways that, according to him, the federal law enforcement was being politicized, and he didn't mention the Mar-a-Lago raid. And so that really struck me as Trump being increasingly on this island of how he's being persecuted, whereas other Republicans are really trying to turn it into a thing just going around Trump direct to regular people, conservatives, who they say are now being persecuted. All right. Well, we've been joined today by Isaac Arnsdorf. He's a national political reporter at The Washington Post. Isaac, where can people find your work? Uh, WashingtonPost.com. 
All right. And you're also on Twitter at I-A-R-N-S-D-O-R-F. Again, that's Isaac Arnsdorf. Isaac, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now we come to Fresh Hell, where Kelly has journeyed deeps into the depths of the internet to make contact with our leader, alleged human trafficker Andrew Tate. <laughs> He's still in a Romanian prison, or is he? Kelly, what is going on? Okay, so Andrew Tate, yes, you would believe he is being detained in Romania on allegations of human trafficking, but a new TikTok account dares to dream and says, what if he actually escaped but wore a mask and tried to get people to sign up for a shady uh, subscription service? Starting around uh, mid-February, a fellow called DrReality.life started filming himself on TikTok wearing a mask using kind of a voice modulator that sounded a little bit like Tate to suggest that he was Tate who had mysteriously uh, escaped from prison without making any headlines or sounding any international alarms. He said in a video announcing his return that he's going to launch a new like app, I think, or like platform website, I'm not sure, that will teach you how to, you know, really tap into the hustle grind set. He says, quote, for example, you will learn everything about business, change your mindset and get other knowledge. I just love the fake Andrew Tate. If if folks watch Squid Game, he's wearing the mask of the guy who ran the Squid Game, the, the evil guy. I think this is just such a fabulous hustle. I mean, for folks who don't know, speaking of hustle, Andrew Tate, before he was imprisoned for allegedly being a human trafficker, is still waiting, awaiting his charges. He ran a thing called Hustlers University. And this was a both a multi-level marketing scheme and a website that promised once you paid money for this, you got inside, you got connected to a group of like-minded awful men. <laughs> you know, it would teach you how to get how to get ripped and how to delude women into becoming your webcam at best servants and you know, engage in various grifts. And look, it was about hustling. Now, this guy, this fake Andrew Tate. Who's getting on here and saying, "Oh, oi, the the top G, I, I, I bribed, I bribed me warden, and now I'm on the loose to teach you the best form to get rich." <laughs> Chavs nicked me mobile. <laughs> yes, exactly. I just love this. I mean, because what better way to get back at Andrew Tate's legions of terrible young men than, I guess, by tricking them into getting more terrible advice? I don't know. This might be a, a good opportunity. Hopefully, maybe this is like a feminist who's, you know, tricking these guys into they're saying the ultimate way to hustle, treating everyone, including women, with respect. <laughs> you know, that'll be yeah, $50 per month. <laughs> For 19 pounds a month, you can uh, read selections from Bell Hooks. We're going to learn how to uh, practice radical self-care. No, I mean, listen, there is something fundamentally really dumb about doing this on TikTok because Andrew Tate is banned from TikTok. So, I mean, at most, right, you're going to wear a mask and either be so transparently not Andrew Tate that TikTok says, yeah, whatever, let him work, or you're going to get banned. And that's, that's exactly what happened within around like two weeks of this guy launching. Okay, so as long as we're talking about Andrew Tate, I mean, this is a guy, you know, obviously the human trafficking allegations get a lot of <laughs> get a lot of press. But ever since he's been in the clink, in the Hooskow, his fans have said, well, Andrew Tate, he's the only guy. He, he taught me how to live a positive life and he taught me how to, you know, um, lift weights and that it's important not to be out of shape. And wow, what a nice guy. I can't believe they're holding this human trafficking thing against him. Now, this has become a hobby horse of mine because I can't, it's just fascinating that I would say 
someone who is easily on the list of maybe top thousand worst public figures in the world. <laughs> that they're saying, oh, this guy's an icon of positivity. Look, if you want positivity, there's all these kind of Instagram influencers in California, you know, who are pushing these kind of vapid messages. It's just bizarre to me that the argument for Andrew Tate is that he's such a nice guy. I mean, look, Mark Ripito's out there if you want to learn about how to lift weights. You don't have to resort to Andrew Tate here, folks. Now, Kelly, there is another issue with Andrew Tate, which is this kind of back and forth thing about him having lung cancer. What's the deal with that? Yeah. So recently, some of his fans have started saying that Andrew Tate has lung cancer and needs to be released to a hospital in Dubai right now. It has to be in Dubai. It has to be. (laughs) (laughs) He needs to be released off the grid. No ankle monitors. Those are sending (laughs) up. It has to be to a country that might not respect extradition requests. Yes. Yes. Parallel to that, or maybe, you know, related, they're also claiming that maybe Andrew Tate is being poisoned. Their evidence for him being poisoned is they'll see uh, pictures of him looking really garbage during his arrest. His hair looks patchy. And uh, they say that, you know, that doesn't look like the Andrew Tate we know and love. (laughs) Friends, that's just how he looks. He shaves his head bald for a reason because he does not have, uh, you know, tremendous hair growth. And that's fine. But it's not evidence of him being poisoned. And Also, it's not evidence of him having cancer because Andrew Tate or whoever has access to his Twitter account, which is, you know, unfortunately still posting regularly, says, no, I don't have uh, Twitter. He says, quote, at my current strength levels, I estimate to survive for about 5,000 more years. So there you have it. Uh, Release him to a hospital in Dubai, not for treatment, but for, I think, study, for medical study. And we'll we'll see finally what's uh, what's going on there. It's very interesting, this this thing about Andrew Tate balding. And look, I'm there too, okay? So, you know, I can comment on a guy's hairline. But, like, it reminds me a lot of when COVID started and suddenly these celebrities were didn't have makeup artists and what have you. QAnon believers said, oh, they've uh, the adrenochrome supply has been disrupted. <laughs> you know, this is why Ellen looks markedly worse doing her show or, or various people aren't getting their Botox injections, perhaps. But no, it's, it's that the adrenochrome was poisoned by the Q team. And that's why Tom Hanks got sick and, and all this stuff. But I have to ask. Has Andrew Tate's supply of adrenochrome been disrupted because he's in prison? You know, I, I'm just asking questions here. Listen, he was accused of trafficking something. We don't know all the answers until he goes oh, to you trial. You know what? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some amazing guests at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics to popular culture. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcast app and share the show on social media and at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer, and Kelly is at Kelly Weil. That's W-E-I-L-L. Come say hi. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian DeMeglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.